All right, we'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, we're going to do this uh, old school style, so you need to open a Bible, all right? So uh, we're not going to have lyrics for you or uh, verses up on the screen today. So open a Bible. You can grab your device if you need to. I'll be reading out of the NIV if that's helpful for you. Uh, 1 Samuel 8 is where we are going to go and make a home as we uh, wrap up this series called The Search for a King. Um, before we do that, I just want to pray because nothing has gone right today. All right. You ever have one of those days? Like 0% has gone right uh, today. It's just been one of those days. So uh, I believe the Lord probably has a good message that he wants you to hear today. So uh, I don't want to be distracted. So you're probably fine. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know if you're like me. I want to be in control of things. Anybody else? I'm the only one. You just want it all to just go whatever the way the wind blows. There's very little you can actually control uh, when there comes to so many different things. So, um, but the Lord has given a word, and we can do that. So if the building burns down, we can go outside and do this in the parking lot. So we're good from here on out, all right? Uh, we got this. So let's pray and uh, ask the Lord for his help, and then we'll get to going. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word. Lord, I pray that you would just make it abundantly clear to us what you want us to see and hear and understand and do so god help us uh, we just want to depend on you so lord uh, we give control of this to you and just ask you to do what only you can do it's in your name we pray amen and amen well what is it that shapes your life when you think about your life what is it that makes you you uh, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your upbringing, maybe it's where you came from, uh, all of these different things. I think your career, your job tends to kind of make you the type of person you are sometimes. All kinds of factors contribute to making you you and making you become who it is that you are. Are. Uh, maybe it's where you come from. Maybe it's the culture in which you grew up in. Like, I grew up in a rural town in southeast Texas, and I have to tell you, even now, living in a metro area of half a million people, to be honest, I still think and live a lot of times like a kid from southeast Texas, a little bitty town of, you know, I graduated with 30 people. Like, my brain still thinks that way. I've been shaped by that upbringing. So you might be thinking about the, the various factors that make you you, the various things that have contributed to you being who you are. And I want to just ask you a question that, that is not meant to be, you know, a shot across the bow, but I think it probably is for some of us. The question would be, where does Jesus fit in that? Where does Jesus fit in with the contributing factors that make you you? See, following Jesus doesn't mean that you give up all of the things that make you you. That, that's not what the call to follow Christ is. It's not saying that you uh, can't have all those things in your background that make you the person that you are. But, but rather, what, what happens when we give our lives to Christ is that we joyfully surrender all of those things to him. And we say, Lord, make us who it is you want us to be. That's what we do when we surrender to Christ. I think about the disciples, right? Like they were people from various backgrounds. You have political insurrectionists. You've got fishermen. You, and some of you are like, wait, what is that? What? Yeah, read your Bible. Like there were some guys who had some real wild past that Jesus called to follow him and be his disciples, businessmen. There, there were lots of different people who were called to follow Christ. And they did. And what you're going to find is that Jesus didn't just make them super Christians all of a sudden. 
It's not like they got called to follow Jesus and immediately became Jesus clones and they're all walking, talking, doing the exact same things. No, they're distinct, different personalities, yet all of them have surrendered everything that they are to Christ and they're being completely molded and shaped by Him. So the question is, have you had that kind of moment? I love what happens in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. There's uh, Peter and John are doing ministry, and the people did not say, wow, these fishermen are kind of with it. These fishermen, they have their stuff together. They didn't say, wow, these people with a Jewish background really have uh, changed their views. No, they don't identify any of those other characteristics. Instead, what they say is these people have been with Jesus. Oh, that, that's my heart. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for my family. That's what I want for us. I want people to see us and be able to say, they have been with Jesus. And when we fully surrender to him, when we worship him with all of our heart, we're going to find this. Here's the big truth this morning. You may want to write this down. Wholehearted worship of Jesus leads to God's blessing. Wholehearted worship of Jesus leads to God's blessing. But on the other side of that coin, you need to know this. The tragedy is that half-hearted worship leads to disaster. Half-hearted worship leads to disaster. And as we've seen in this text over and over, unfortunately, uh, the people of Israel in 1 Samuel are going to model for us the wrong way to do it. But as we see half-hearted worship that leads to disaster, my prayer is that the Lord in His grace would just invite us to be a people who worship Him with our whole hearts. So let's read this text, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read this chapter in its entirety. And then we'll pray again and ask the Lord to help us understand His Word. Here's what the Bible says. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have." But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights." Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves, and he will take them to his attendants. 
He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants and the very best of your male and female servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your town. Let's pray. Lord, uh, in this chapter, this really sad culmination of this series, I pray, God, that you would help us uh, not just to see the tragedy, but, Lord, to learn from it and, and to be able to figure out how it is that, that we can be a people who worship you with our whole heart instead of half of our hearts. So, God, let us be shaped by you, not the world around us. So thank you for what you're going to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we see in this text in the first two verses that Samuel is old and Samuel has his son step into leadership. Now, if you remember when Samuel was coming into leadership, he had Eli's sons working and leading him and they were evil. Well, it's tragic that the same cycle has happened with another spiritual leader of God's people. Samuel's sons are, are not fit to lead. They are not godly. They're not worshiping the Lord with their whole heart. And really, in verses 1 and 2, we see foreshadowing for the rest of the chapter. So just as the sons of Samuel are, are not following the ways of Samuel, so the sons and daughters of Israel are not following the, the Lord. And that has drastic, drastic consequences. And what we see in this moment, they're looking at the, the world around them and they say, hey, our leaders aren't cutting it right now, so uh, can we have a king? And the text very clearly points out that they looked around at everybody else and decided, hey, uh, can we have a king like the rest of the nations around us do? Like, hey, we've kind of been checking other people out and seeing what they got going on. And it seems like it's working pretty well for them. They've got gods, yet they also have an earthly king. So could we have a king as well? And the Lord makes very clear to Samuel, who Samuel was upset, probably had some mixed motives there. Like, my boys are your leaders. And they're like, no, we want a king. But the Lord says, no, 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 Samuel, don't get this twisted. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. That's a strong word, isn't it? So here's what we find right out of the gate. Half-hearted worship is not worship at all. Half-hearted worship is not worship at all. Friends, you need to know and understand today that our idea of worship is so mashed up and confused with the culture around us just as it was in this day that if we're not careful we find ourselves looking around at the world and being shaped by it instead of being shaped by the Lord. I don't know if you're still processing last week's sermon but, but I find myself in that place still today. Perhaps the most convicting and challenging thought for me is the idea that we are more distinctly American than we are distinctly Christian. That concerns me when I look at my life and I think about the way I'm living. I'm like, I think I'm shaped more by our culture and the world around me than I am shaped by the Lord. And why is that? Why does that happen? 
I think it's because we are a people of half-hearted worship. See, the people of God wanted a king, but you need to know their thought process here wasn't, hey, we're done with the Lord, get us a king. No, they wanted a king in addition to the Lord. They, they weren't trying. In fact, they went to the Lord's representative, the prophet Samuel, and said, give us a king. They wanted a king to go along with all the other stuff they had going on. Oh, we want a king, but we still need the ark nearby. We still want the glory of the Lord in our lives, but we want the Lord to be here to help prop us up. We want to serve the Lord so long as the Lord serves our interests. Ooh. I mean, you wouldn't say it that way, but don't you find yourself doing that? Oh, I, I want to follow the Lord so he'll bless my family. You know, I want to tithe so the Lord will bless me financially. I, I want to go to church so I can have good kids. I, I want to uh, do the right thing at work so that God will promote me. Like, again, we don't say those things, but y'all, if we're real, we do kind of live in this weird bartering culture with the Lord. If I do my part, he'll do his. Sowing and reaping, right? Can I just tell you, praise God that you are not reaping what you've sown in your life to this point. And some of you are like, well, I think I've done... Well, then pride is what you've sown. Praise the Lord that you're not reaping the destruction that should come from that. so easy to worship the lord with half of our heart and you don't even know you're doing it it's the sneaky nature of idolatry in american culture it happens before you even know it but the lord desires complete surrender from his people we need to be completely surrendered to him because if we don't we're going to find that we're being shaped by things that are not of the Lord. And that's the second truth we find today is that worship shapes your life. Worship shapes your life. I love this in the text. And really, to be honest, I'm saying it in a nicer way than the text does. The text is incredibly blunt. I'm using this word shaping. It feels philosophical, right? Like, you know, but the text says, here's what's going to happen. If you get a king, you're going to take your sons. King's going to take your daughters. Uh, the way you work's going to be different. The way you raise your crops. Uh, the way you live your life. Everything is going to change. He said, listen, you want a king for yourself, but this king is going to take you for his self. That's what's going to end up happening here. I want you to understand, friends, that what and who you worship has a way of shaping your life. Your life is shaped by what and who you worship in profound ways. You say, well, pastor, I, I don't know that I'm worshiping anything other than Jesus. Well, I think you probably have a flawed definition of worship. We've talked about this before, but let me just throw it out there again. Worship is our response to what we value the most. Worship is our response to what we value the most. So, so let me just ask you, what is it that you value above everything else in your life? So whether you're a believer or not, you might be here today and a friend or family member drug you to church and you're like, yeah, I don't do that whole Jesus thing. You're still a worshiper. Your life is wrapped around what it is that you value more than anything else. So let's just tease this out a little bit. If you worship your family, 
then everything in your life is going to revolve around family at all cost anything else. If you worship financial security, then your life is going to be wrapped around, the family is going to be affected by your work, and your work's going to be affected by the attitude and the heart that you have there of trying to get more and more. Your friendships are going to change. Your life as a whole is going to be shaped by that. If you worship your church in a way that's unhealthy, your life will get consumed. Guys, I, can I just tell you, a lot of you who've ended up here got quote-unquote burnt out in another church, and can I tell you what I find myself doing all the time? Going to y'all and saying, you're going to burn yourself out again, and you're going to leave us, and you're going to blame us. But you need to do the old classic T-Swift, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. If you've left three churches because they quote-unquote burnt you out, at some point you need to recognize it's you. We're shaped by what we worship in irreparable ways oftentimes. And again, when we half-heartedly worship the Lord, we've convinced ourselves that, oh, even though I'm being molded and shaped by all these other things, Jesus is a real important part of my life. Oh, but friends, Jesus ought to be the one we value more than anything else. And when we value him more than anything else, he is the one who begins to mold and shape our lives. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to change the way you live in your family. He's going to change the way you serve at your church. He's going to change the way you operate at work. He's going to change the way you spend your money. He's going to change the way you interact with your friends. Everything is changed when he is in his rightful place. So let me just ask you today, is Jesus what you value the most? Is he the one who is shaping your life? I said this last week, and I'm still just burdened by it, and I hope that you feel this and have wrestled with this some this week. There's a real danger in being shaped more by the culture than we are by Christ. And our culture has made it, again, very easy to bring Christ along with us as we're being molded and shaped by the culture. We, we come to church, say the right things, do the right things, raise good moral kids, and, you know, and at the end of the day, we're like, yep, good Christian family right there, yet you look just like the rest of the world, except for what you do on Sunday mornings. Y'all, it's easy to get sucked into this. Do you really treasure Christ? Can I tell you what my biggest hang-up is? Is I want to do things for Christ instead of just loving and treasuring Christ. Duty versus delight. Anybody else? Like, you're here today out of duty, and I can tell because I see it on your face. I know, I got a little personal, but some of you are so delighted to be here. And if you are, some of you need to tell your face. Right? Because sometimes it looks like a lot of duty right my kids are like wait a second what did he just say it's fine do you delight in the lord is he the reason that you do what you do you know people talk about i want to have a job where i you know i get out of the bed in the morning excited about like people talk about all these things can i tell you something you have a savior who should cause you to delight to get out of bed in the morning and live for him you have a Savior who should change the way you go to work, even if work stinks. You have a Savior who ought to change the way you engage with your family. He is worthy of our whole worship, and when we worship Him in that way, He begins to shape our life in incredible ways.
Oh, but it's so easy to find ourselves shaped more by the world around us than it is by King Jesus. I want to just invite you today, quickly, to think about these first few verses. In verse 4, when it said that, verse 5 actually, such as all the other nations have. Can I tell you that the devil has this hook in us that we want to be like the rest of the world? We, we do. And I know that some of you say, no, we don't. No, we don't. Well, yeah, you can probably pick the wild subcultures of the world and say, no, I don't want to be like the world. They're all crazy. But you don't want to be that different. Because the more different we get, the more change we get with Christ, the crazier our world thinks we are. And we don't want to be crazy by the world's standards. I want to invite you to get your eyes off the world and set your eyes on Christ. Stop looking at the other nations. Stop going to the trending section of social media to see what everyone's mad about today so you can decide what to be mad about. Stop turning at some of you are like, yeah, social media. Stop turning on cable news in the morning for an hour to see what you're supposed to be mad about. Man, when I had cable, I was the guy that tried to be even-handed and watch both sides. I just ended up mad at everybody. (laughs) You know? It was like, some of y'all wanted me to be more right or more left. I was just more done with all of it. Goodness gracious. But it was not helpful. Stop looking around at all the world around you. Stop looking to your neighbors and saying, man, they, this is classic, but guys, this is what happens to us. We're shaped more by the culture around us, the people around us, the things around us, than the God who dwells inside of us. If we were to decide to, to be discontent with being shaped by the world and we were hungry to be shaped by the living Holy Spirit inside of us, look out friends, our lives would look dramatically different than they do what is it that God wants to do in your life I would say to you that most of us don't know because we're too busy trying to do our own things and saying God bless my goals, God bless my dreams, God bless my career God bless my vision for my children. Instead of saying, God, what what are you doing and how can we get behind that? What is it that you want from my life? God wants some of you to go to the mission field. God wants some of you to be in vocational ministry some of you are like oh this is getting real intense God wants some of you to tell your co-workers that you're a Christian for some of you that you'd rather sell all your stuff and move to Africa what does God want to do with your life friends the Lord invites you to the risky wild crazy idea of valuing him above everything else and letting him be the one who shapes your life. Some of you don't even know what your life would look like if you did that. I'm still trying to figure that out right here, right now. 
What would it look like for you? What would your family look like if you really believed that? And said, I'm going to stop looking around at the world. I'm going to stop trying to make my decisions based on what these people think, those people think, this book says, that book said, this mommy blog wrote. Like, I'm just going to ask the Lord, what do you want me to do with my family? Again, some of us are scared to pray those kind of prayers because what's God going to tell us? What does our church look like if we say, hey, Lord, we want to do whatever it is you want to do. We're done with the crossroad agenda. We're done. You know, we've got all these cute mission statements and all that. We'll trot them out there, put them on a T-shirt. But, Lord, what do you want to do with us? Some of you are scared of what he'd say. Well, I like church the way it is right now. Well, guys, what I want to tell you is that we need to be done with doing things the way we like, the way that we think is best, and we need to just say, Lord, we value you above everything else, so have your way in us. Have your way in us. And when we do that, worship shapes our life. Friends, you need to know that if you're worshiping hopeless things, you're going to live a hopeless life. Psalm 115.8, in a, in a passage about idolatry, it literally says, those who make them become like them. So it's talking about objects of wood and stone. So it's saying, if you're crafting idols, you become as lifeless as those idols. Some of you are building and shaping lives that are going to be empty and hopeless, and therefore it's going to make you empty and hopeless, because apart from Jesus, that's what it is. Oh, but the invitation today is to come and to surrender to Him. Because if we don't, brothers and sisters... We're going to find that self-worship leads to disaster. That's what we find in the text. Self-worship leads to disaster. In verses 19 through 23, we see God's discipline at work. And we've talked about how does God's discipline work. We see it right here. God said, let them have their king. If they're going to choose to go a different direction, if they're going to choose to be shaped by somebody other than me, let them do it. And as they go and do it, what happens, guys? Have you read the Old Testament into the New Testament? Literally centuries of dysfunction and crazy. Like, sure, there, there were some good moments along the way, but even the few good kings that they had ruled over divided kingdoms. And it ends with God's people being exiled, but then they finally get to go back, but they're going back to broken cities and towns, and then they're still under the reign of other people. They don't have freedom anymore, and God's people are under this discipline from God. I want to remind you, though, that God disciplines those He loves, according to the Scripture. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. So even God letting them go this direction was Him hoping that they would see we need a better king. He was hoping that they would run into their own way of living and that like the prodigal son, do you remember this story in Luke 15? He takes the inheritance and he runs. Some of you today have been saved by Christ and you have been given the inheritance all the spiritual blessings of eternity are given to us now, according to Ephesians chapter 1. That's wild. God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I, that's in my Bible, guys. It is accessible to us now as Christ followers. And we can be molded and shaped by this Savior. Yet what ends up happening is we take the money and run like the prodigal son. Oh, but friends, in God's grace... 
he allows us sometimes to get to the hog trough and when we get to the hog trough we realize I have a heavenly father and he, he, surely he'd let me the servants eat better than what I'm eating right now he says I'm going home so even in the midst of God's discipline y'all we see his grace at work in an incredible way in the prophets we starting with really the prophet Samuel going through the prophets of the Old Testament you're going to consistently see this thread that says a better king will come a truer king will come he will make all things right he will restore Israel to its place of prominence he will reign on a throne forever and ever and ever and imagine if you're the people of Israel and you've got all these bad kings you have centuries of negative experiences and consequences and they find themselves saying yes we need this king please Lord send us this king every time a, a political uh, figure would rise up any time that a new kind of rebellion would start they would think is this it is this finally the king and then it would get squashed and they would go back to ground zero but then all of a sudden there's this new rabbi this new teacher from Nazareth and he's teaching and preaching like nobody else ever has before said that he taught with authority and that he taught and spoke as if he were God himself. He's healing people. Lives are being transformed. People are leaving everything to follow him. Dead people are coming to life. So much excitement swells that as he goes into the Jerusalem, the people come and they say, hey, he's riding on a colt that's never been ridden before, fulfilling one of those prophecies we know about. This is the king. Let's go and let's throw our cloaks down. Let's throw down our palm branches. Let's say, Hosanna, which means God save us. This is it. Our king has finally come. Yet in a handful of days, he's going to be beaten to within an inch of his life and hung up on a cross. And they all go home broken and defeated. They thought it was over. See, friends, they forgot the prophecy that we read earlier in our service in Isaiah 53. It said that the Lord actually came to be crushed. In fact, the text said that it was the will of God to crush him. You and I deserve to be crushed because of our sin. God loved us enough that he sent Jesus to take our place. By his wounds, you and I can be healed today. We can be saved today because we had a king that didn't come and rule like the rest of the nations around us, but we had a king that came and when they were beating him up, he didn't open his mouth. We had a king that when he came and they were scoffing him and making fun of him, he didn't respond. We had a king who came and was obedient all the way to the cross and to the point of death. And that Jesus took the sins of the world, our sins, the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future, took them on himself, and it crushed him. He died on the cross and went to the grave, but as Isaiah 53 says, Today, he shares the inheritance because God raised him up victorious over sin and death. And any of us who call on him get to share in that same inheritance. 
So can I tell you, friends, the king you want will destroy you. What is that today? I'm going to go full Garth. That could mean lots of things. Some of you are nervous. It's fine. <laughs> Too soon. I was going unanswered prayers, by the way. All right. <laughs> Inside baseball, it's fine. Right? Some of you right now, if you had the king you wanted, if God gave you what you thought would fix your life and bless your life and make your life the best thing ever, it would actually end up owning you and destroying you, just like it did the people of Israel. Yet God in his grace loves you too much to let some phony sit on the throne of your heart. And he sent me today to say to you, it's time to evict yourself, get King Yu off the throne and say, Jesus, you have the rightful place as king of my life. So you don't get the king you want, but friends, you get the gracious king we need. We've talked a lot in this series about discipline and blessing. And, and I know it's gotten confusing because I've had conversations with some of you. Like, so, so is what I'm going through now, is this the Lord's discipline? Or, is, or if everything's going good, does that mean that, that God's blessing me right now? Here's what I want to say as we wrap up this series. The blessing of God, because we're saying that wholehearted worship of Jesus brings God's blessing. And some of you are like, okay, well, I guess I'm not worshiping with my whole heart because things aren't great in my life right now. Hear me when I say this, brothers and sisters. The blessing of God comes not from the circumstances outside of you, but from the Savior who dwells within you through the Holy Spirit of God. And the blessing of God can go with you into the best days and the hardest days of your life and every single day in between. Because when you have him, when he is on the throne and he is calling the shots of your life, you can say that you are blessed even when everything else seems to be going to Hades in a handbasket. See the king of your life today? Guys, can I just lovingly tell you, you're not a very good king. Like, you've botched it so many times. And even if you think you're killing it today, you're going to be in my office in the next year to 18 months saying, what have I done? And I want to tell you, the Lord in his grace has given you an opportunity today to get rid of King you and worship King Jesus so that you can experience the blessing of God come what may in your life. The search for a king is over, and I don't just mean the series. Some of you are like, thank you, Jesus. The search for a king is over because that role has been taken by our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Is he sitting on the throne of your heart today? If he's not, let's do business with him we have this time of invitation. Just say, Jesus, be my king. We're going to sing a song in a moment that just has that refrain. You are my king. Pray that, mean it, and live it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that it's brought to us today. Oh, God, we want to be shaped by you, not shaped by the world. Yet we recognize we have a real enemy that is constantly seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the ways that the enemy does that is by giving us eyes for the world instead of for you. 
So Lord, would you just help us today to unload the throne of our heart, whether that be financial success, health, our families, or ultimately just the idol of us. And when you let us be a people who truly embrace you as king of our lives, where we want to see what an individual life looks like when you rule and reign over it. We want to see what a family looks like when you rule and reign over it. We want to see what our church looks like when you rule and reign over us.